Welcome to this session on nursing and HIV AIDS. I am a nurse. My name is... <laughs> yeah, how many others do we have here? All right. And how many nurse lovers do we have here? <laughs> okay. Um, my name is Debbie Dortzbach. I had to marry him to learn to say it, so <laughs> you're excused. And I am wearing a dress from Eritrea. Anyone know where that is? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it used to be part of Ethiopia, but now it's a separate country. It's where I worked as an intern for one year. And then uh, God took us to Kenya for 25 years. So I've um, been very, very, very blessed to use my nursing in a variety of settings. Um, I currently work at World Relief, where I've been for the last 14 years, uh, based in Kenya and working globally, but now based in Baltimore. So I, I didn't have so far to come today. Um, by way of background, I, I, uh, I was blessed to go to Wheaton College and then Columbia University and then Emory. And uh, I have a master's in public health and a master's in nursing as a clinical nurse specialist. So, but all of that doesn't really matter. What really matters is how, what we give back to the Lord, not what we've received from him. That's absolutely all his blessing, but what we return to him is um, where he wants us uh, in our relationship with him. So I hope that during this brief time together, there's so much to cover in HIV and AIDS, but I'd like to take you to a number of places in the world and capture a glimpse as this young girl is peering into the church in Haiti, curious about what's going on. I hope to spark some interest from you all uh, in this whole uh, burgeoning arena, as well as have opportunity to learn a little bit from you too, because I'm sure there's some wonderful and rich experience among us here today. Um, so to start off, I'm going to share with you a story of a woman who impacted me very much and her family. I'll call her Susan. I went to visit her in a large hospital in Kenya uh, with her sister. I had learned from her sister, who was in a Bible study group with me, that Susan was not doing well. She'd been in the hospital for uh, months. She was not getting better. The family was quite concerned because the bills were continuing to escalate, and still they didn't see any progress. So I thought that I would go and just uh, explore things a bit with my friend. When we got to the floor that she was on, we had a hard time locating her. Uh, people seemed to be elusive. And finally we found her huddled at the end of the hall in a room all by herself on a mattress on the floor with a plate of uneaten, dried up maize and beans next to her. And she was lying in a pool of vomit and diarrhea. Because she was young, in her late teens or early 20s, and because she looked so emaciated, I knew that probably she had AIDS. And that that had not been talked about uh, openly by the medical staff or at that time in the 90s, or by the family. 
So what was I to do? How were we going to manage this really impossible situation? There was no way that the hospital was going to be able to help her. And there was no way that the family could understand what was going on. And there was no way that Susan could even talk with them. So I did my best, and we started to negotiate about returning home. It's really good if Susan goes home, because there she can be with her, her son, who was only two years old. There she can have the support of her family, and there I can help you with knowing a little bit more about how to care for her at home. So, yeah, my friend agreed. And we went on this big process of trying to get her out of the hospital. You would think that might not be so difficult, but that was a big challenge. First of all, to make sure the bills were paid. Second of all, to get all the signatures. And third of all, to somehow whisk her away without being bombarded by requests for bribes from everyone, from the people, the staff on the floor to the watchman at the door. So eventually, it took a couple of hours. It was way past 9 o'clock at night when we, we took her in the car and uh, brought her home. Well, her son was still up, and he just bounded out of the house, so eager to see his mom. And he ran to the car and wanted to embrace her, and she stood wobbly next to the door, car door, needing assistance to get into the house, kind of stared past her son and failed to even acknowledge him and recognize him. And the son was just so um, overcome with, with disappointment, thinking that his mom was coming home because she was well. She'd been in the hospital to get well, but she was coming home sicker than he ever could imagine. This story could be repeated uh, actually millions of times in, in Africa and in many other places. And while we've made tremendous advances since the 1990s about how to treat this virus, what, to, how, what interventions are effective, we have a long, long way to go. And understanding not only some of these medical advances and, and that, that we can build upon and continue to expand and create even more ways to be effective, we also need to understand the significance and importance of doing it in settings that are appropriate and culturally sensitive uh, with our interventions. And there's a whole host of issues here that we could would, could delve into. So let me just ask now, among you, who has lived internationally and done medical work internationally? Okay, good. We've got some wonderful um, experience here. Thank you. Then you're going to know um, a little bit about what we're talking about, the, the significance of applying knowledge that is global in a context where it's appropriate and can be um, not only better understood, but expanded and improved upon because it is rooted in the people's understanding and, and way of, of thinking and um, interacting with each other. Um, one thing I forgot to do this morning was, was greet you, and at least in Africa you just cannot come into a room and not greet people. So in Kenya where I lived, you'd have to shake hands. 
And if I were really doing this properly, I would go around to absolutely all of you <laughs> and shake your hands because it's important to um, stay connected. And uh, when you are connected, um, that connection is vital for, for absolutely everything you do. So, yeah, shaking hands is something that we do, well, somewhat in our culture, not always. Um, we might say, hi, how you, or whatever. But I think my favorite greeting, uh, which is quite different from my culture, it comes from Eritrea, where I lived. And if you don't mind, I'm going to greet you the Eritrean way. Is that okay? Fine. Yeah, you can stand up. Okay. And what's your name? Renee. Renee. Okay. Well, Renee, I'm going to pretend that I haven't seen you in a long time, and you're my best friend, okay? Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> likes it. <laughs> I do too. And she is loved because I kissed her so many times. I've honestly been kissed so many times I, I thought I would fall down sometimes. Um, because if, if you haven't seen someone in a long time, it's sort of like, you know, you get a kiss for every day or something that you've been absent. I'm not sure what the formula is, but it's, it's quite fascinating. And um, and, and warm and, and, and embracing, of course. So, yeah, there are different approaches and different cultural aspects that really influence how we react with each other and uh, how our work is implemented. And I'd even like to suggest here quickly that the scriptures give us a number of ways that uh, interventions were adapted to the local context. So many. I'm just so thankful. Even though Jesus lived in a certain culture and time and place and interacted uh, significantly with a group of people, we have many examples in Scripture of how, how to adapt what we're doing and saying to a local context. And one example, briefly, in the Old Testament would be Moses. I think it's just phenomenal that, that God put him in a basket and in Pharaoh's uh, palace to learn and understand the culture of that class, of that leadership style. And uh, he, he learned so much through that. And then the people of Israel learned through that in such a significant way. That's one example of just an amazing intervention of adaptation that God had prepared. And he will prepare each one of us as well for some of these really tough Interventions. Maybe you don't feel so comfortable talking about sex to a couple. Or maybe, you know, except maybe using medical terms, which we're all comfortable about with. But if you're talking with young people in a certain culture and country, then do you know what terms they're using? Do you know the significance of um, what's appropriate and what's slang or, or inappropriate? Uh, and even... Going beyond that, working in some cultures where sex is never talked about anyway, and now this epidemic is forcing us to address these issues um, very, very directly. And that in itself is a conflict. It just is. And so how do you bring it about in a gentle way so that you build trust and you're able to assist in the knowledge base of people you're working with. Another example of cultural intervention is, is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I, I love that story. There, 
Philip did not spend years in a, um, a palace or a school or some place where he could learn more about Ethiopia. He was from a completely different country and a very different um, a class of people as well. This, this man was used to uh, a lot of pomp and circumstance. He was in a chariot. But Philip was used dramatically by the Lord to, to open God's word and truth to that man, to that Ethiopian eunuch. And I love how he just bounded into the chariot and sat down next to him and started a dialogue. Sometimes that's also how God works. He gives us an opportunity and he says, you go for it. And don't worry about uh, exactly how you're going to do it. If you've been walking with me, if you've been praying for for God to use you, then trust me. I'm going to use you in this incident. I, I begin with that because there are countless times in which I have said, oh, Lord, I don't understand how to apply this issue to this culture. And... Um, and no one is doing it that I can see. Uh, who do you have prepared to, to partner with? How can I be sensitive and learn and grow with the understanding that's there? And then also, how can I be bold in presenting your truth and using this crisis as a platform for that truth? Uh, we're going to, I'm going to just quickly because maybe not all of you are real familiar with all the facts, but, um, we probably know that AIDS is primarily transmitted, uh, through sex. And it is a virus that is very, very crafty. It changes its DNA to avoid detection. We now have 20 different, uh, antiretroviral pills. That are trying to control this thing. We still don't have a vaccine. We um, are making headway, but there's a long, long way still to go. And this is on the backdrop of 30 years of intensive science and a lot of global networking and money and interventions from all different um, walks of life. But it still is a virus that is so crafty because it affects the immune system, and the immune system is is just God's amazing way to protect us from illness. And uh, when it works in most of us, um, we don't get wet, <laughs> okay? But sometimes there is, you know, a blustery storm like Sandy gave us in Baltimore, and uh, the umbrellas weren't much use. <laughs> However... Uh, for the most part, our immune systems work very, very well. But what this crazy, crazy virus does is just attack it. Yeah, that's right, just like that. And yeah, now I have a couple holes, and I'm going to get a little wet. And But, you know, I'm not going to be real upset about it, because I'll get over it, I'll dry off, and... Uh, the illness will go away, and I'll just continue life as I've always known it. It's not going to incapacitate me. That can take, well, first of all, this is extremely dangerous because <clears throat> when you're newly infected, you're the most infectious, okay, and you don't know it. So, yeah, this awe that we all experienced is very, very real, but it's subtle and it's silent, and uh, people cannot associate, for the most part, their infection <clears throat> timing 
or even knowledge. But what happens then is that this, this virus just continues to replicate. And it continues to do its damage uh, across your body, um, affecting every part of, of your body. And the holes just get bigger, and the medicines that we have, yeah, don't work. Um, and, you know, the normal medicines for treating colds and viruses and um, our nutrition isn't working anymore. And so eventually we become very much like Susan, uh, shriveled up, even unaware of our environments, and completely <laughs> without an immune system. And death occurs. So this is this has tremendous implications for the church, uh, for our health care. And I'd like for you just to take a second, only two minutes, and uh, chat with two or three around you to give me some feedback about, okay, so if this is happening, uh, what can we do about it? What can the church do? You can choose. We're going to talk about health um, and or the church, but we're going to put it all in context with the next part of our time together in the next half hour. So I'd like you to interact a little bit with this. Use the cultures you're familiar with and talk about, okay, so if this is happening, what does it mean for us as Christians? Okay? Two minutes. All right, let's uh, come back together. I'm really happy to see you all interacting. And I, I, I feel it's, extremely important that we do interact with this information because it will be much more relevant in our own context then. Tell me just a little bit about some of your thoughts. Does anyone want to share one thing that you talked about? Education. Education. Great. Yes, very, very significant and a very important role. Barriers. Yes. Okay, so you talked about the barriers of, of our own perspective and feelings uh, and helping understand better knowledge and breaking down some of those barriers that we have as well. Great. Other thoughts? Yes. The media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. So you're you're suggesting that uh, the media here is influencing not only our own culture but multiple cultures across the world, and it's not a very good influence. Yes. Social stigma. Enormous. 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 You know, it's pretty interesting that no one's talked about the body yet, the physical part. Of this, and I, I'm I'm actually happy with that because many of you are health practitioners, and that's what usually comes to mind. So, what I why I love working in HIV and AIDS is that it encompasses everything about life, all the ages of the lifespan, even before life um, it comes into this world, prenatal care and conception, preconception. Uh, there's just so much that can be impacted through this crisis that we long to see overcome, but that we can seize right now with many, many 
uh, opportunities and skills that God has given us as health practitioners. So why is it still important? You know, this crisis has been going for 30 years, and you'd think that we would have a better handle on it with 20,000 people meeting every two years to talk about HIV and AIDS and the international AIDS conferences. Uh, it is, by the way, the largest um, uh, conference on any one given disease that uh, is held every, every two years now. It used to be every year. But we still have 34.2 million people living with HIV. That's an awful large number. Uh, 8 million are on antiretroviral treatment, which is great, and there have been tremendous advances, but still, it's only about half of the people who need that treatment. And for every person on treatment, there are still two new infections occurring, new, <clears throat> uh, new cases of people uh, getting the virus. So we're, we're way behind in making the headway we need to. 70,000%, 70, sorry, 70% of people living with HIV do not know their status, and that's staggering uh, and uh, very, very humbling. So just like I showed you with the umbrella, uh, if you don't know your status, you probably aren't going to do very much about it, about your own health, but also about how you transmit it to others. <clears throat> uh, there, in 2011, were 1.7 million AIDS-related deaths. There's an enormous problem with co-infections with TB. And uh, Dr. Harrington at the International AIDS Conference in Washington this past July said that 100 million lives could be saved if we really got serious about addressing TB and HIV, <clears throat> those two diseases. And they are very much connected. Now we're beginning to see twin epidemics, and um, this is HIV and non-communicable diseases. So not only are people getting the diseases that are related to HIV that, that just are persistent, but people are living longer, thankfully, with treatment, but now they're also getting uh, diabetes and uh, chronic obstructive lung disease and heart problems, and many of those diseases, of course, we know can be prevented. But uh, addressing that issue with, with HIV is an enormous challenge for us as healthcare workers. And you had a question? I don't want to interrupt you. It's okay. Go ahead. Uh, I will take some time, but go ahead with your question. Well, I'm just curious what he means by getting serious. <laughs> what we mean by getting serious with, do you have a perspective on that? All right. So you had a perspective. I want to know what getting serious. I think we're very serious about it. Mm -hmm. We are. And, uh, but what I'm, the point I'm trying to make right here is that that serious nature has waned a bit in the last couple of years because it's been going on for a long time. There are ups and downs in behavior trends, and people are, there's a fatigue uh, that's kind of shrouded this whole crisis, and people who have been perhaps uh, eager to see a, a cure are discouraged because we don't have one yet. A lot of our interventions haven't worked, and that's discouraging, and the money is, is shriveled up. There are lots of reasons why th this crisis continues to really um, be fueled by relative um, 
fatigue and inactivity, or waning interest, I would say. Um, for the new rate, with the rate of new HIV infections and access to treatment, uh, we've had significant interventions which have worked, and um, we are able to uh, see people live a normal life relatively for many, many years when they're on treatment. And we do know how to prevent infections. We, we have the skills. We have the science. We have the interventions. And one, one area in particular that I hope you will become involved in, each, each church, each Christian, each healthcare worker, if we get our hands around the prevention of mother-to-child transmission, we can join the global plan for this to eliminate that route of transmission by the by 2015, and there is a very serious intervention there which we can um, rally around and get the word out about testing, about prenatal care, about the value of, of children and life and supporting the mother so that she lives and can care for that child. There are just so many interventions that can be very effective um, in addressing mother-to-child transmission. And one of the main threats also are the unsustainable costs. This year alone, $11 billion are needed to, to really be effective in treating this disease, and only $2 billion have been uh, delegated, not just from our government, from all governments. And so there are tremendous shortfalls just in, in the money and the resources needed. So that's where we come in. After all, what is health? And how do nurses promote health? We're going to have to kind of rush through this a little bit, but I would fail you if we did not give a biblical framework for all of this intervention. And I'd like to turn our attention to a very familiar verse from Luke 10, 27. It's also found in the Old Testament. But um, here... After telling the story of the Good Samaritan, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, and he said, so what do I do to, internal, to inherit eternal life? And the answer we know um, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty inclusive, but I think it's the best definition of health uh, that is, is expressed in a succinct way and has so much implications for how we apply this definition. So we're going to look at that a little bit. This is kind of the usual way that we think of nursing care, of providing comfort and service, um, taking care of people who are sick. And this is a beautiful picture of a Christian in Cambodia, a home care worker who was part of a local church who dared to enter the house of this woman who had AIDS because in her community, in her culture, she was considered cursed. And there can even be a visible sign at the doorfront warning you, anyone who would want to come into the house, and they have a, a skull and crossbones. I've seen it, you know, painted on the door to say, beware, there's a curse in here, just beware. So the neighbors stayed away. People were not visiting her. She was languishing 
at home. And I think an, an old grandmother would come to see her, but that was it. But this Christian demonstrated not only her, her love for her neighbor in this case, but applying her heart and her soul and her strength and her mind to intervene and provide health for Shrub. This woman's name is Shrub, and the healthcare worker is Sunkunthia. <clears throat> we also know that this is a demonstration of, of intervention in this crisis, of caring for the orphans, and there are many, many, many millions that are, will be with us for a long, long time because remember I said that for every person on treatment, there are still two new infections, and that is going to continue to spawn many children without parents. However, one of the drivers for preventing mother-to-child transmission is so that the mothers do stay in the home and they are well enough to care for their, their children. By the way, we're now facing the reality that many children who have survived the infection from their mother uh, are, have past childhood phase, they're, they're, past, they're getting into adolescence and adulthood. And this transition of living with the virus your entire life, from either before you were born or at the time of birth or through breastfeeding, and now uh, entering uh, puberty and then adulthood with that virus, there are a lot of implications socially, mentally, um, treatment-wise, that we really don't know how to address because it's new for us and it's an enormous issue. But I'd like to ask you, what's healthy about this picture? She's reading the Bible. She's reading the Bible. Yes, she is. What else might you see? She's what? She's clean. Yes, she is clean. Uh, she's sitting up. That's a good sign. She's, she's made the effort to get out of bed and interact uh, a little bit uh, in her life. She is, of course, enormously thin, <clears throat> and she does have AIDS. Uh, uh, but she also is from Cambodia, a country where less than 2% of the population are evangelical Christians. And this crisis brought her to the Lord. And what an amazing opportunity to seize this tragedy and use it as an opportunity to share Christ's love <clears throat> through the church and through his word. <clears throat> so then, let's look at these five areas of um, health that are described in the verse that we read of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving our neighbor. All of them are aspects of health. And if you don't take anything else away today, I hope you'll have some of these visuals embedded in your mind. You can use your hand to identify those five areas. And the palm of your hand is like the basis for it all. It's the spiritual, okay? Where you might say, where is the spiritual component of health up there? But it's integrated into absolutely every one of those areas. So looking at the emotions, looking at... The, the volition, our will, what we do, and that's one understanding of soul, helping with the decision-making uh, from, from the Greek and the Hebrew understanding of soul. Uh, the mind, the mental understanding and knowledge, the physical, the strength, and the health, the physical health, and then the social, working and interacting and loving our neighbors 
as ourselves. So if we look then a little bit at some of the roles of nursing, and you, you did talk about some of them, but one I see as very critical is in this crisis of HIV and AIDS is being a bridge builder. You know, there are few people intervening in the health cycle of a person living with AIDS who have this particular distinct role of interacting with many, many players at, at the family level, at the education level, at the hospital level, at the clinic level. There are, there are so many opportunities that God can give us to build understanding, to link people to other resources, to inform and understand from a cultural perspective, to build across cultures. That's one reason we began talking about some of that difference, because we, we can't just transport knowledge and dump it into a brain or and, and expect that a person's going to be healthy. We have to build bridges of understanding and building trust. And that might mean that you drink lots of tea in some cultures, just learning and interacting. It might mean that you learn to hug um, and embrace in a, in a little bit of a foreign way for you. But discover those bridges and build them. Uh, I would say that perhaps some of the primary areas here that bridge building is essential. We can, in a sense, all of these roles affect all aspects of health. But in particular, bridge building can be very use, useful in knowledge or the, uh, enhancing the mind and understanding, in strength, building bridges for um, resources and, and treatment, uh, linking different treatment opportunities and being the person that is the hub and, and interacts with various care providers, also in the community, and then socially with the family. And that's why I gave the example of Susan, because Susan's health could still be impacted at home. And how can we assist in that role as well, even though the hospital no longer was playing a role at all? A facilitator. That's a great function that nurses have of um, providing opportunity for people to learn in their context and from their knowledge base and also learn from each other. That's one of the reasons I had you talk a little bit to each other and why we want to interact with questions from you because that social engagement is so essential in this crisis. We can have all this knowledge, and I've had... Uh, been in many settings where doctors and nurses and health providers were asked to talk about AIDS, but it didn't connect because we were not facilitating the information from the cultural perspective or from the knowledge base or fears or stigma that people had in the beginning. So we were just kind of dumping information and not really facilitating a learning process. The caregiving, that's an obvious one that we are very familiar with and that probably each one of you nurses has gone into this profession to provide. And uh, that certainly the care, care to the heart, uh, dealing with those emotions, like even that little boy who was two years old and, and was so deeply disappointed, who was going to care for him when his mother no longer knew him? And how could he be um, supported 
with the tremendous changes that were coming into his young life. Uh, decisions that are made, the actual act of care and comfort. There's so many areas here that we could talk about, but you're familiar with, that impact not only the treatment with antiretrovirals, but the care and support and comfort of people living with the virus or who uh, are impacted by it with a family member. And I would like to introduce a, a little bit of this simple, simple book that we developed at World Relief called Hope at Home. And it's translated in many, many languages now and uh, with photographs from those countries where the language uh, is different. And the reason we used photographs and big print and very few words is because we wanted it to be simple enough for even some children who were caring for their parents living with the virus. So it needed to be visual. It needed to be real. If we use diagrams, you know, there can be all kinds of interpretations. But if they see a photograph of the activity, then they can identify with it. You're welcome to have a look at this. It has all the basic nursing care that we all learned in labs and have done with, with many, many patients. There are a few photographs or um, diagrams in here, like the oral rehydration and things like that. But uh, TB, um, prevention, nutrition, exercise, getting out of bed, comfort, uh, care for people, um, engaging this, this picture, I wish I could show it to you all, but it's, it's a whole family surrounding the person with AIDS and, and providing touch. Some of the most simple things that nurses are very good at uh, need to be shared and imparted and, and promoted. Uh, an advocate. So that role is critical for us because we get to know the people. We're the ones, usually, that spend time sometimes much less than we'd like, and sometimes it's, it's sort of preoccupation with machines and, and medications and all those things that we have to do to provide good care. But we do get to know people, and we can be their advocate for those needs and the realities of what we're seeing and communicating that beyond even our own basic um, health interventions. But... This role of discipler does definitely transect all of these areas of the heart, the soul, the mind, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I'd like for you to think about discipling, yes, in the sense that we know it from in our um, studying the word of God and, and sharing it with each other and growing in our own walk with Christ, but also think of it in terms as uh, monitoring and evaluation, because that really is what monitoring and evaluation is. It's really discipling, actually. It's kind of helping one another be accountable, the monitoring side, and evaluating where are we in our walk and where do we need to go. And that is an enormously important function for nurses and healthcare providers in this crisis, and we don't do enough of it. We don't do a good job at it. A lot of times we're often not assessing uh, whether or not the interventions we've been doing have been effective or not. Whoops. So we're going to have to race on to finish. Uh, 
this man came, is, is in China. He walked into a church. He'd never been in a church before. He brought his little son, and he went and knelt at the uh, front of the church. And he shared with us later that he, his wife had left him. He was all alone with his little boy, and he wanted help. He also admitted that he'd had a number of sexually transmitted diseases, and he wanted help for that. What a beautiful opportunity that God just opened the church doors for him. He didn't know where else to go. So, yes, AIDS is about broken relationships, but the church is about mending them. And this poster from Vietnam was just in the street. And I thought it illustrated a a very powerful expression of the heart and a cry for help. You don't have to know Vietnamese to understand what this is saying. This poster of the man with his arms uh, just reaching into the sky and and his pencil-thin hands seeking help and the cry in his face. But here is the response. This is the church that Trub was part of. This is where she came to know the Lord. These are all the members of the church raising their hands in praise to the Lord and also telling God that we are here, we are ready. They went through the whole training of Hope at Home, and they were now ready to be uh, going into those homes where the skull and cross arms were warning them that there's a curse here, don't come. But they went in the strength and power of the Lord with their arms not crossed, and fearful about what might await them, but outstretched to give care and support to the people they were going to and lifting in uh, submission and honor and praise to their Lord and Savior um, to serve. Prevention services cost money, but HIV infection costs far more. In lost lives, ruined families, gutted communities, HIV and AIDS is currently rolling back decades of human development and is threatening to derail anti-poverty initiatives around the world. One averted HIV infection represents hundreds of thousands of dollars saved and a more secure future for generations to come. That's from a publication by... um, Perhaps you might think an unlikely place, the United Nations Family Planning. Uh, And so, but you can see that there is a rally cry across many different groups and organizations for intervention that's essential to curb this crisis, to represent to a world that has their arms reached out in desperation and to invite them to know the Lord Jesus and his saving grace for eternity. Now, I'm going to take a couple questions. We have two minutes. (laughs) So, go ahead. Um, Yes. Mm -hmm. So the question, the question is about breastfeeding when a mother is HIV positive, and it entirely depends on the context and where you are. If um, obviously the safest is a, 
an opportunity for the baby to receive formula or something like goat milk, but that depends on the context because we know that the risk of diarrheal disease and dehydration and death is, is very, very high in many, many places. So by and large now, UNICEF and others are, are saying in many countries, you know, follow the protocol that the Ministry of Health has established, but it's probably going to be, yes, breastfeed for six months exclusively. And the risk is very, very minimal, especially when the mothers and the baby are on antiretroviral treatment. But you'll hear much more about that with the global plan. Yes. Isn't there a problem, too, though, in some cultures where they do group nursing, where, you know, they swap babies and, you know, whichever lactating woman picks up, you know, this other child? And there's such a stigma. First of all, women are not tested, mm -hmm. so many don't know that they have it, and mm -hmm. then... Many are not treated, and many do not admit because of the, the, yeah. the social stigma. That's a very so. good illustration of uh, where there might be a communal breastfeeding um, environment. And that's where education and um, trust building is essential, uh, and, and group support as well to, to really address that issue. Yes. No, go ahead. Right. So the, the question is, there are lots of organizations doing things, but politically, uh, what difference is it making and what is our role? And that's why I put advocate up there. It's a very, very important uh, place for us as Christians to be. And I think we can take heart with the example of Sunkuntia, who went into a very dangerous place. We might be entering politically dangerous arenas by comparison, but the, the principle is the same. Get in there and be used of God to bring his message and his comfort and his care. And thank you very much.